Good afternoon to a uh, special date edition of What Comes Next Live. We're going out today, uh, Monday, and it's eight minutes past five because Rory and I have already been chatting about some human behavior and we thought, well, we better go online. <laughs> uh, my guest today is Rory Sutherland, um, author of Alchemy, with a subtext from his editors of The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Um, I have written about on my over 1,500 daily blogs, I have referenced inspiration from Rory on multiple occasions, including the wonderful line, the problem with logic is that it kills off magic. And uh, my provocation, if you will, is that a lot of the ideas that he comes up with, and I would put it that many others come up with, having got into the mode of thinking, um, of alchemical thinking is that a lot of ideas do make sense. And one of the biggest compliments I've ever been, I, I get paid occasionally is when people, you come up with an idea with somebody, normally collaboratively, and they say that, um, that seems so obvious now. And the now is the operator. So sometimes it's, it's, it's using magical thinking rather than logical thinking can bring forward ideas that do make sense. So, um, very pleased to have you on. Um, and um, broadly, these half-hour chats, roughly half-hour, are all for the guests to talk about whatever comes up for them, what comes next, and might be stuff that you were inspired by your latest nudge stock, which was which I was um, most excited to jump in on Friday. And everybody will have their favourites, but I loved hearing Matthew Sire talk to Ian McGilchrist. Um, so I was totally nerding out on behavioural stuff. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation then, actually. It'll be posted on YouTube on the Nudgestock channel uh, separately. I think the whole stream is available now or will be shortly. But in probably a week or so's time, we'll post the separate talks individually. Uh, that was a particularly memorable talk. I really enjoyed it. Mm. And Yeah, absolutely. So, um, again, it, it, this is an open space for you to chat about anything that's, that pops into your mind. I know you write a weekly article. Um, I loved the one last week about just rethinking working environments. And, and I, you know, I talk a lot to CEOs and leaders around the world over the last couple of years about sometimes going to first principles. Like if you, if you started from scratch, what would your working environment be with the technology and, and travel transport links we have now, et cetera? One other reframing I tried on um, working uh, remotely or working flexibly. Mm -hmm was I tried to ask from our finance people a question which I thought should be central to business consideration, but clearly isn't, mm -hmm. which is how much do we have to earn as a business for a relatively junior member of staff to go out and buy a curry? Okay, so if you take income in, some of the money patently has to go to the shareholders, okay? Some of the money is, you know, overheads, operating costs, etc., and some of it is tax. Then we forget there are other forms of tax, for example, repaying student loans mm -hmm. um, and the cost of living in an extremely expensive city where quite a lot of people in London, 50 percent of their after tax income disappears into the more of accommodation and transport costs. Yes. OK, so I said by the time the employee gets to do with a pound or in this case I suppose for a curry 15 or 20 pounds what they really want to do with it how much of it has been stripped away in between the client paying us as in Ogilvy mm -hmm. and the money actually reaching the hands of um, the 
individual consumer in this case. Yeah. Now, you know, right wing people get incredibly exercised about tax rates. But, yeah. you know, within a few percentage points, there's a limit at the moment to how much we can actually enrich those employees by reducing the rate of taxation. Mm -hmm. But there are other forms of taxation. I mean, there, you know, there's the cost of running office space, which arguably the employee wouldn't willingly pay for if you asked them to. Okay? Yes. Um, there are probably excessive administrative costs. There's the cost of commuting, mm -hmm. which is not only a financial cost, it's an extraordinary cost in terms of time. Yeah. And there's also the interesting question of whether people necessarily want more leisure time mm -hmm. or whether what they value is a degree of autonomy, not over how much they work, but over when and where. Yeah. Okay. Now, it strikes me that if you revisit this question of, in other words, how effectively does a company translate revenue into salary, into discretionary salary, mm -hmm. you could enrich your employees both financially and in other ways at zero cost. Yes. Now, there are going to be other costs. OK, you know, let's be clear about this. OK, uh, there are going to be, uh, you know, there is a necessity, I think, for um colleagues to co-locate for yeah. purposes of training, team morale, information exchange, serendipity, all those things. I'm not sure that has to happen five days a week and between the hours of nine and five mm -hmm. for it to be truly valuable. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, you might argue that people going to the pub after work actually, at their own expense, I might add, actually creates more bonding in a team than people sitting around in an open plan office. Definitely. But it, there's also that question of how you frame um, how you frame a problem and I, I, what was interesting is that the finance function had no idea and had never considered what you might call the labor value movement as distinct from the shareholder value movement that's fascinating um, let me you've been you know you you've spur my thinking so let me jump in a bit your piece in the spectator last week was was talking about the transparency of people knowing whether their colleagues come to the office or not because they'll physically see them so it gives a competitive edge to uh, the employee making a comparison and with the sort of language used around war on talent almost oh not almost every single ceo business leader i know is very much focused on what can they do to make their their place of work attractive for people around the world um <clears throat> So what you're looking at there to me is joining together two things. The company will be very good at working out how much it spends on office space, how much it spends on this, you know, the classic model of we'll charge four times the employee's remuneration cost and that's where our profits come from, etc. But you're absolutely right, particularly in a crazy city like London, um, your discretionary income for that £15 curry might be coming out of 10% or less of your income. So when you start looking at it that way, and imagine if the employer actually it, it gave them a... It will be a case that actually in order for the, the employee to have a curry, yeah. uh, a client has to give Ogilvy somewhere in excess of £100. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay, let's, let's accept that some of the money goes to the shareholders. It's not entirely clear to me what they do. Um, but um, nonetheless, let's accept the fact that some remuneration for the shareholders is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but an enormous amount of money gets lost in between rewarding talent mm -hmm. and accepting income, which doesn't seem to actually benefit either the talent or the client or the shareholder. 
And reducing that to some degree seems a perfectly healthy uh, uh, um, direction of effort. But it doesn't seem to have happened. Now, you know, obviously we'll need to preserve generally the efficacy. But there are also, of course, huge potential upsides here, which mm -hmm. is one of the most invisible things in the world. If you consider how much time is devoted to gender discrimination and racial discrimination, mm -hmm. geographical discrimination is never factored in because it's just seen as inevitable. But I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. so that's just an example, okay? When I was president of the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising in London, we would hold conferences, and maybe they cost £200 for IPA members to attend. And I did occasionally make the point that they cost £200 for London-based IPA members to attend. But mm -hmm. if you're based in Edinburgh, they cost £500 because you have travel cost and accommodation and you're out of the office for a day and a half. Okay? And... You get home at about 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And what's so strange is that we've never noticed this, that there's extraordinary geographical discrimination. So I was, this was brought home to me with a fantastic potential employee came to me just to speak about career advice. And she was very clever, but she got a third in medicine. Right. And she said, I realised too late that I... You can run the Afro-Caribbean Society at university if you're doing English, but you can't run societies and have a big social life if you're doing medicine. And she mm -hmm. said, unfortunately, this dawned on me a bit too late. <laughs> I was hanging out with people doing English and history and thinking I could enjoy the same leisure options when really I had to be up at eight o'clock in the morning to start dissecting a corpse. And I said, you know, is this a major problem? And she said, no, in many ways, no. She said, I've got an advantage over my contemporaries who mm -hmm. got first-class degrees. I said, oh, so? And she said, oh, my mum lives in London. And she said, you know, there's an enormous difference between being able to live, you know, live with my mum in London at minimal expense yeah. and look around for jobs wherever they appear mm -hmm. versus someone in, you know, Sheffield, let's say. Mm-hmm which I think is the, the poorest city in England, apparently, according mm -hmm. to Paul Collier, who is from Sheffield. And it strikes me that, of course, in theory, in economic theory, you simply move to where the jobs are. But that's not actually possible at all, is it? Because once you're above the age of about 30, certainly if you're married to someone who's also got a job, if you have kids in school, the idea of moving from Sheffield to London is more or less impossible. Mm -hmm. And... The, this, this whole idea you know, of labour market mobility is really, it's a, the, it's a theoretical idea, which is in practice constrained to a pretty narrow demographic. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, this idea of geographical discrimination, which is that it's, you know, automatically assumed that, a, you know, a, a necessary requirement of uh, remunerative employment is that you live in the most expensive real estate in Europe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm a Georgist. You've got to remember that. So this colours my opinion on lots of things. I fundamentally think that Henry George uh, was right about economics. I think that um, I think that um, a property should be taxed and should be a, if not exclusive, but at least a significant source of tax revenue. Mm -hmm. um, because my argument is that look, what George spotted is that whenever you have any source of economically productive activity which is dependent for its performance on its location, 
Ultimately, the gains from that activity accrue to the landowner much more than they accrue to the practitioner. Yep, okay. so that's, that's what uh, it reminds me. I need to get Mark Blythe, another Kilconomics regular, on, back, on, on this, and he talks a lot about the rentier economy. Yeah, so. and, there's, and of course, real estate is a massive re uh, rent-seeking uh, mm -hmm. economy. And I can't remember what it is. Is it 70% of bank lending is real estate related? Something like that. And if it isn't 70%, I mean, I'm a recovering chartered accountant. The first step is acknowledging you have a problem. But I do numbers as my second language. Um, and by the way, the number that you're talking about broadly for a professional services firm that sells time is it's 99% of every pound or dollar that goes into Ogilvy has to goes on other things before they have that 1% to spend on the curry. <laughs> so it, there is a lot of movement. It, it, is, it, it, is, it is amazing. But the, the fascinating thing about um, that system is around lending is that even if you're borrowing for something else, the mindset of the bankers is still around, I need a piece of hard, tangible asset. So it still creates that kind of discrimination. The, um, yeah, the, the, the interesting the, thing, you see, the very interesting thing there to me mm -hmm. um, is that, in a weird way, I'm not actually supporting labor against capital in this battle because I'm a Marxist. I'm supporting labor against capital because I'm a consumerist. Yes. And the, and the central axiom of economics is that the purpose of activity is consumption. Yeah. And yet there's some very strange things. Let me give you a very interesting example of, of how if you make interesting alien style comparisons, in other words, the kind of comparison that nobody imbued mm. in conventional modes of thinking ever makes, but mm -hmm. that which a kind of strange alien might make. I think you should tax property because property is rivalrous. OK. Mm -hmm. And you should subsidize the purchase of new cars. OK. Uh, let me explain. OK. When you buy a new car, you engage in a spectacular act of redistribution of wealth and de democratization of transport. Because after that new car is three years old, you sell it at less than half what you paid for it. Yep. In a state which is barely inferior to the state at which you bought it new. Mm -hmm. OK. And you sell it to someone poorer than you. Okay? Yep. Now, what's fascinating about the car, and this is what drives me crazy, Marx would have loved cars, okay, right? Okay, Marx would have loved McDonald's, okay, he would, you know, but he would have seen the car as spectacular because if you've got £1,000 a month and £1,000 up front, you can enjoy 98% of the mobility, comfort, protection from the elements, ability to travel on the roads of someone who is a 1,000 times richer than you. OK, yeah, OK, it's more comfortable in a Rolls Royce. I get it. You know, your thousand pound car is going to have slightly naff interior um, fabric on the seats. But nonetheless, in practical utilitarian terms, it's 95 percent as good. Certainly the gap between no car and crap car is enormous compared to the gap between car, crap car and very good car mm -hmm. in terms of what you can do. Okay. Now imagine how brilliant the world would be if property weren't like that, which is, I've, I've got this house for a million five, you know, but uh, the TV's, you know, to be honest, is a bit out of date. And uh, I've seen a place with this new kitchen where you have boiling water on tap. So why don't you buy my house for half a million quid? <laughs> I'll move into another one. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. But also, also, of course, there's the vital thing, which I don't think is understood, which is that the car is, of course, I, I'm interested in the extent to which and this is a completely mad theory of mine. 
the extent to which we actually become rich and the quality of life is improved mm-hmm. in proportion to the invention of George's tech. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I see the Internet, obviously, and video conferencing as essentially, I mean, the chattel house is, have you come across this thing? Yes. Yeah. So the chattel house was a, an early example of George's tech, which mm-hmm. was the former slave owners demanded rent of their newly freed workers. And yeah. the rent was not coincidentally more or less adjacent to what they were being paid. OK, right. And so they invented the chattel house, which you could pick up and move somewhere else. OK. Yeah. And, you know, I see emphatically that the, um, uh, you know, the Internet and Zoom is George's tech. You know, you might argue that the motorhome is George's tech to an extent. Mm-hmm. OK. But I'd also say that the car is the most remarkable piece. I mean, the railways, you know, are also sort of pro, you know, they free you from the depredations of rent-seeking landlords. But the car does that magnificently because public transit, which is considered to be socialist, okay, Mm -hmm. tends to operate on a hub-and-spoke model, which means that if you want to open a restaurant and make any money, you've got to open it near to a hub, and who owns the land near to the hub? Well, it's probably the Duke of Westminster, right? Yep. Okay. Whereas the great thing with a car is if you're a talented chef, okay, you can go and buy a pub in the middle of nowhere, turn it into a gastro pub, and people will drive to you and eat there. You know, you can escape from this kind of rent seeking whereby the most valuable land is happens to be located in places which are what you might call high hub areas. Mm-hmm. And you can actually create custom wherever it suits, mm-hmm. which strikes me as an extraordinarily valuable thing. And yet, weirdly, we have this strange mantra within transport trying to get back people back to mass transit. Now, by all means, pick holes in this. Well, I mean, you're, the, the joy of listening to your, your mind go on to whatever tangent or direction you feel like is that it's provocative. And it just it, it is great to provoke thinking. I one of my blogs I wrote years ago was pay someone to put their feet up, and I would imagine that that uh, the 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 board of directors at Ogilvy doesn't think you sit in a corner office putting your feet up, but there's a level to which that's your job, right? Is um and you know the, there is you know apocryphal story of, of it's interesting in that for all its faults the advertising industry is one of the very hmm. few areas where you're paid to think perversely yes yes okay uh, journalism would like to think you're paid hmm. to think perversely and maybe once you were rewarded for thinking hmm. perversely but broadly speaking it's become quite conformist but a necessary function i think of solving advertising hmm. problems is that you reframe them in some respect. And so you get your, your reframing muscles get quite well honed mm-hmm. by doing that job. It's like that wonderful thing when Clarkson went to produce a car commercial. And he goes and interviews the creative guys. And he said, so what you want me to say is that a Citroen is now better because you can put diesel in it. And they said, no, that's probably the wrong way of looking at it. The way to look at it is that diesel is now better because you can put it in a Citroen. <laughs> exactly. And you can see him, along with most of the viewers, I think, being yeah. irritated by what they thought of as a piece of complete perversity. Mm-hmm. But that's actually the necessary function in a lot of problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it, I, you know, it's very, very interesting to me. First of all, you re-ask the, you know, you, you rewrite the question as the first mm-hmm. task. 
Mm -hmm. And secondly, you look at things from an angle which is, you know, highly um, tangential to the main angle in which the problem is traditionally framed. Mm -hmm. And I find this, I I find it just interesting because you realize that most people are not incentivized to do that at all. And you would argue that that should be a central function of the education system, but it seems that it isn't really. Well, I remember one of my sons had a Cambridge interview for economics. He didn't ultimately go there, but um, he went to a school that didn't do further maths A level and it turned out quite disadvantaged in the interview process. But he was kind of cool. He went to the, the, the interview and he came out and said, how was that? He said, it was brilliant. Since there were three dons there, two of them had Nobel laureates, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, and then they gave me this problem to solve. He's 17 or 18, right? And he said, I have no idea how to solve that. This is, we don't expect you to. We're not here to, so, to, to see um, if you can work out the answer. We're here to see if you, how you think. So ask us questions that can help us help you move forward. And, and he's, he walked out walking across one of the green spaces in Cambridge in the middle of winter with me. I've never seen him so energized because all they were really interested in was how do you think? What do you think creatively? Do you think outside the box? And yes, a bachelor's degree in economics is there's a lot of stuff you've got to cram in almost, you know, a bit less, less than a medicine degree. But, a, but then ultimately it does become about thinking tangentially. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm in total agreement. Um, how can I get you on a bike? Oh, electric bike. I'm actually contemplating. You don't even need to do the work because I'm contemplating it. Why do you want me to get me on a bike? Well, it's it was you asked me to pick holes in the car analogy, and it all makes perfect sense. No, no, no. I mean, the, the, the bike it is worth noting. Okay, that a huge amount of the increase in cycling is really people using the roads as a gym, not as a mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. And it also strikes me that there's a dirty little secret to a bike. Okay, which is that unless you're Lance Armstrong. Uphill, they're not much faster than walking. Okay, so yes, you can kick them down to a gear on your Shimano, whatever it is, or your Sturmy Archer, right? But once you're in first gear on a bike, even if you're pedalling like crazy, you're basically just about beating walking speed if you're pretty fit. Okay. Yep. So the limitations in terms of demographics of use, in terms of range of applications, distances. And topography and climate, okay? All four of them are limitations which don't apply to the car. You can be old, it can be a really hot day, or it can be raining, and you can face a massive uphill journey because you live in Lisbon or somewhere, or Bath, and the car does the job, okay? And unfortunately, the bike does not. But the electric bike, particularly because you can put some of the energy into things which bikes traditionally don't really cater for very well, like comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, a, I, I said what I want is the electric bike equivalent of the Honda Goldwing, you know, <laughs> yes, which is basically an armchair on an oh, armchair. Well, motorbike, yeah. Yeah. And I, was, I like the Honda Goldwing. I think it's a proper, you know. Um, but the point about that is I'm saying that when, you have, when the whole thing has to be geared towards efficiency, mm-hmm. things like comfort fundamentally take a back seat. Mm-hmm. 
and you have small tyres, which, by the way, I've got a friend who's a triathlete, I mean, a serious sort of titanium and lycra-clad cyclist, and he says the problem with the narrow tyres is they're very efficient, but potholes and things are a living nightmare, you know, yeah. or going over a kerb at slightly the wrong angle, you end up on your side. It's a kind of, you know, knife-edge kind of thing, whereas you can actually produce electric bikes with big, chunky tyres, and the surplus, the surplus energy goes into driving the tyres when you're on the flat and mm. helping you go uphill when you're going uphill. They're a fascinating reframe. I, I live at the southern edge of London, so south of the river we have hills, Rory. I'm not sure if you ever ventured out. Oh, no, no, I'm difficult. I'm in Kent, so we have oh, Toys Hill. And you probably come here, don't you, to Toys Hill every fucking weekend. No, I'm not. Get in the way of my car by riding <laughs> two abreast. But the... <laughs> I'm at the foot of the North Downs, and when I moved here... Where are you, Surrey, or just inside London? Just inside London, and also Surrey. It's quite complicated. Um, It's a lovely place to be, actually. But at the base of the the hills is a shop that sells e-bikes, and they're a massive reframe. And one I just gave to the Cayman government, because I'm a Caymanian. Very flat island. Very few people commute more than 10 miles. There is no public transport system. It's an economy that developed really rapidly over the last 40, 50 years. And their answer to, to, to traffic, which can be two hours for 10, for 10 miles in the evening, yep. um, which is geographic discrimination in terms of time and cost of housing, um, their answer is to build wider roads. At no point are they considering building segregated cycle lanes. Well, one of the reasons is um, that, you know, because it'd be a lot faster, right? One of the reasons is that uh, it's hot. So an, an, a different, an, an additional reframe for electric bikes is if you have an electric bike on a flat island, you don't have to sweat. <laughs> well, well, if you think about it, it's not that fast cycling if you've got to get changed at both ends. No, exactly. And right. By the time, it's rather like Jeremy Clarkson's argument against the motorcycle. Yes, you drive down the road at 90 miles an hour, but since you have to spend half an hour getting dressed <laughs> beforehand, <coughs> quite a lot of those time savings are actually eroded. And if you add showering, by the way, it also, by the way, reduces the environmental benefits of cycling. Possibly. So one hot shower plus all the energy you need to prov- provide the calories to pedal the bloody car. We, but we, we all have biases in there, and the bias you have as a car driver is that you showered before you went to work. Right? The cyclists would just jump on the bike and shower when they get to work. No, that's interesting. But funnily enough, one of the things I most like about working from home uh, is bizarre which is the fact that all those things like having a poo, cleaning your teeth, shaving and having a shower can be performed at any time of the day. Yes. Because the one time you don't want to be doing that kind of stuff, to be honest, is after you've just got up. <laughs> it's true. And I also have a big belief. My, my, my own personal theory is that the 2008 financial crisis is partly caused by bankers starting work too early. Because if you don't have a proper poo, in the day, okay, you feel out of sorts, you're incapable of independent thought. Um, It's it's a theory of the neuroendocrinological theory, okay, of the financial crisis, is that these people get up too early, so they haven't had a proper poo, so they are literally full of shit. My my old man, for years in the 80s, um, lived 15 miles south of Edinburgh, but he ran a computer business, um, National, outside Hounslow, near Heathrow Airport. And so he, he had to, on Monday morning, he had to be in the office for a nine o'clock meeting. So he would get, he would get up, um, drive very fast to Edinburgh Airport, throw the car into the parking place. Back then they had shuttles where you could walk onto the plane, right? Get to the office and people were complaining about they were late for the meeting and, and says, Oh, there's t- terrible traffic on the M4. 
or whatever. And he said, well, I just came 400 miles. So they, they, they pretty quickly arrived on time. Um, but the main thing was he would say to me, he would like get up and he said, I'll have a, I'll have a, an, a triple S in 30 minutes before I get out the door. Before I get out of the door. <laughs> Shower, a shave and a, yeah, but, it, <laughs> but it is, I mean, that's a strange thing, which is that actually one of the things we're very bad at in an age of quantification is understanding the value of autonomy. Yeah, yeah. But being able to work at times that suit you. So one of the things, being 56, I can't really work. I've got one thing after this, which will end at seven. Mm-hmm. Then I'll stop for three or four hours. I might then work at 11 o'clock at night. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't work for 11 hours, 12 hours in a row. No. I could when I was 26. I can't when I'm 56. Yeah. And that, that also brings into mind you know, other interesting things, like, for example, retirement, which is do people retire because they want to stop work or do they retire because they want to stop commuting? Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, my guess is, without stereotyping accountants, because I know you're a recovering accountant, but, you know, you've got some guy, he's 61, yeah. right? He's got a place in Portugal close to a golf course somewhere, right? He wants to spend three months of the year there, mm-hmm. okay? And he doesn't want to get up at 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock every morning to catch a crowded train. Well, actually, none of those requirements for his life are actually incompatible with performing accountancy work. No, not at all. They're simply incompatible with the employer's idea of what is necessary to perform accountancy work. Yeah, anything like that. And yes, I, I, for clarity, it's, that's a line I use for credibility with professional service firms when I go in because they need to know I'm one of them. Mm. I am a chartered accountant by training. But yeah, I kind of semi-retired years ago because I work, from, I work from anywhere and I work largely on video calls. And I have no intention of ever retiring. I've already rewired. Yeah, very, very interesting. There's also the value of, for example, uh, there are a lot of people So there's a great paper by an economist called Noah Smith where he calls it uh, distributed service sector productivity, which is that by reshaping the service sector Mm -hmm. to make it less dependent on on, on coordinated co-location, you should be able to enjoy massive productivity gains. Mm -hmm. He calls it a kind of zoom boom. And his comparison is that it was when they finally used electric motors to do the same thing in manufacturing that you got an extraordinary productivity improvement in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Because not everybody had to be powered off one central steam engine. But there's also the thing that I think there are a lot of problems where what you want is maybe it's an hour of you or maybe it's an hour of me. You don't want to put us on the payroll, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but it's undoubtedly worth having. Uh, you know, I, I think most people's time comes with diminishing marginal utility. In my case, it's actually negative marginal utility, because if you put me in a full time job in an actuarial firm, after about two weeks, I'd start setting fire to things or setting <laughs> a fire alarm or photocopying my bum or something. OK. And so the ability to draw on appropriate talent for short periods yes. from anywhere in the world. Yeah in order to solve problems and answer questions, seems to me to be extremely valuable. Well, at, at, certainly when you, you know, for people like perhaps yourself and me, I mean, certainly the way I, I don't have an employer. So the, the way right. I operate is very much like that. My clients tend to talk to me less than six to eight hours a month. Yeah. Uh, but my job is to think laterally and think creatively and think illogically and look at some magical thinking because they never have the time for that. And um, what you say they always say to you is that's so obvious now. 
Yes. And that's my point, by the way. When I say that, I, that, that there's an importance of ideas that don't make sense, everything makes sense in retrospect mm-hmm. because we have a brain which is brilliant at post-rationalizing. Mm-hmm. So even things that, you know, to be honest, we can post-rationalize anything. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you give anybody any kind of series of narrative events, they can probably string, you know, a, you know, a sort of sequential thread between them to make them make sense. The trick is that you've got to accept that some things in the future don't make sense if you're only looking at the past. Correct. And if you're using the past as a model, you're constrained in your creative thinking because the the data set you're drawing on simply <laughs> came from what was one of 500 possible futures five years ago. We won't get into a quantum physics conversation. There is a, there is a kind of element to yeah. the, asymm- the asymmetry question. Yeah, I, so I, think, I think it's really interesting because mm. I think um, I think there are a whole load of interesting mental facets to humans. One of, one of which is you know the false dichotomy, which is to assume things are in opposition when maybe you can creatively resolve them. Hmm. And my friend, this is I mentioned this in the Spectator, Nicholas Gruen's point yes. about Toyota. Everybody assumed there was a quality price trade-off. And actually the Toyota Corolla was the uh, most reliable car in the world, yes. um, the fewest faults, with absolutely no quality control people employed at all. Because they worked out how to get it right upstream, effectively. Yeah. And in a culture called Kaizen, right? So. An extraordinary Kaizen culture and so on. And the interesting thing, I mean, funnily enough, it was kind of an American guy, wasn't it? Edwards Deeming, who was the kind of um, instigator of a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but we also have, so we have false dichotomies, then we have false averages, and then we have, I suppose, hidden asymmetries, which is things that we just naturally assume are kind of symmetrical, but which fundamentally aren't. Okay. I, mean, it, it, I mean, things that really interest me are, for example, um, uh, okay, uh, I'll give you an example of where the world's uneven. In most cases in economics, if something goes up in value, more people sell it. Okay? Generally. Mm-hmm. I would argue that uh, there, there are probably a quarter of a million people living in London who are trapped there by rising property prices. Mm-hmm. Because you're frightened of leaving for fear of missing out and for fear that you'll never be able to move back. Yes, because the prices keep going up. So, you know, it always interests me, okay, that the way we buy property, of course, is completely different to the way we buy cars. No one goes into a car dealership and goes, okay, well, look, if I put down everything I've got here and um, I borrow to the max, uh, what's the most elaborate car I can afford? We make some sort of trade-off between, uh, you know, cost and utility Mm -hmm. and personal taste and so on. Um, And yet, when people buy houses, the heuristic is pretty much get together as much money as you can and go all in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that's because I suppose, as Marx would say, the investment value of property now dwarfs the use value of property. Totally. And so the only way to buy property, actually, is I, I think, is to find something that other people hate that you don't mind. Well, the, I, I most of my life has been lived in different countries and working internationally, and the those asymmetries of what you work with. And I'll give you a typical property one. When my um, oldest kid was about a few years old, I thought, well, I kind of don't want him to go to boarding school, so let's let's set, get a place in Scotland where I'm originally from, and he can go to high school there. 
So I just bought a place and thought, you know, it took a while to find one in the right area, but bought a place and rented it out. And, you know, three years on, I thought, well, let me just go and get a, a new insurance valuation so I can insure it for the right amount. And it had gone up a lot. It had been a property yeah. boom in the early 2000s. And I thought to myself, one of the reasons I was going to leave Cayman and go back to Scotland was this education. But the other one was, it's damn hot in Cayman in the summer, and I can't afford to live on the water where it's cooler. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I just went, well, it's all good and well that it's gone up a couple hundred thousand pounds or something, this house. Um, but it doesn't mean anything if I move to the UK because every house of a comparable value has gone up the same amount. But if I sell it, I can afford to buy an oceanfront piece of land in the Cayman Islands. So I took an asymmetry and just went, well, that makes all the difference. So I turned around to the family and went, how about we stay in Cayman, um, but we build on the water? And I said, well, how are we going to afford to do that? I said, well, if we sell the house to Scotland, it's gone up in value. <laughs> so you just like look, it's the asymmetries. It's, it's seeing things, it's, it's just seeing things differently. And that's what entrepreneurs do. I mean, if my, my, there's no real translation for entrepreneur, right? But it's somebody who takes openings. And it's like it's seeing the gap. And I think uh, that's a big piece of what you do. And but the, I think to me, well, the joy of it, Rory, is when you the book stimulate others out. to think the same way. You stimulate others to think about think creatively. When, when the book came out, I got extraordinary levels of interest from the investor community, I think, for precisely this reason. Yes. Um, and it's that whole thing of, well, maybe, maybe we, you know, we don't want a wide slot toaster. What we need is narrower bread. You know, there exactly. are usually two ways of looking at the problem. Well, there's at least two, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, it, it is very interesting because I don't think it's encouraged to the extent it should be. I don't think it's taught to the extent it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, my, my, I have three sons, all of whom have done economics at university and the poor buggers, when they finish their bachelors, then I start talking to them. And, and I don't look to deliberately dismantle, but then I am, I'm always asking them reframing questions about how the world actually works. Well, of course, the other thing is that when when the world works as economists think it should, <laughs> they don't look for other explanations. They simply go in accordance yeah. with the economic theory. You know, the price has gone down, demand has gone up. And I always make this point that there's a very lazy why there, because if you, uh, the example I always give is a sale, okay, at a, a department store, you know, the Harrods sale, okay, and. To be honest, if you dropped all the prices at Harrods by 35%, I don't think you'd notice a massive increase in sales for the no. three weeks you did it. On the other hand, if you add, for example, scarcity value, which is the sale only lasts two weeks, you add social proof with large crowds of people queuing outside, you have crowds of people inside fighting over bargains and grabbing things furiously, you will create the behaviour and obviously the economic component isn't irrelevant to that. No one's held a naught percent off sale, okay? Although there is such a thing as a naught percent sale, which is simply say last one. Three seats left at this price. So here's, you know. here's how I could double Harrods profits in their January sale. Go on, hit me. This is what happened in the sale of sneakers in America in the last number of years. They do drops of limited edition product. And you have to enter a lottery to get it. And if you can flip the sneakers, and Jordan started this, Michael Jordan with his sneakers in the 80s. But that's how, you know, the people with the brands have done this. And imagine you take all the upscale stuff like, you know, Hermes and LV and all the different Birkin bags and this kind of thing. And you go, special Harrods editions only available from the 2nd of January for a week. Yeah. Um, and um, they're five times the price. Yeah. <laughs>
No, so that's a backward sale. I mean, the, the fascinating thing is that, of course, you know, generally that, you know, um, the, the part of the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong. It's that when it's right, it assumes that it is only the economic reason that is actually operating. Well, you have challenged me with the idea of my my, log- my, my line about that seems so obvious now to just really humbly look and see, am I post-rationalizing or are my clients post-rationalizing some of the ideas? And the honest answer is it's going to be both. Sometimes it yes. will be, and economists do that, and sometimes we genuinely come up with something because they'll spend their 50 hours a week maximizing their time and productivity and hours spent, and they really won't spend, you know, a CEO once asked me last year, he said, who should I be talking to um, to expand my horizons? I said, anybody who doesn't work in your industry. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because Matthew Syed and his book Rebel Ideas is very good on math. And I think it's a, a I mean, Matthew Syed, of course, is part of this team that advises the England football team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it received a lot of abuse because many of the people there um, uh, aren't footballers. I mean, Syed himself, as well as being a behavioural scientist, and a, um, is also, I think, British champion table tennis player. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you have people there from cycling and you have people there from everywhere else. And it got a lot of abuse. But the point is that most of the things that other football experts know, Gareth Southgate already knows. Yes. Okay? Yeah. But the second thing is, I think, which is really interesting, it's not only the, impart- the imparting of additional incremental knowledge. I think it's the huge risk of the blind spot. Whenever you get a very homogeneous group of people, mm-hmm. okay, you have this spectacular blind spot. There's a lovely example of this, which is that the Blair government had this idea of on-the-spot fines where the police would simply march you to a cash machine and make you withdraw £50. And it played very well with large parts of the electorate until someone pointed out, and it would have been a cop, I imagine, look, these guys, first of all, they won't carry a cash card if this starts happening. Secondly, they haven't got £50. Exactly. And it was one of those one of those fantastic theories which makes wonderful economic sense, but it actually gets mugged by reality fairly quickly. And those blind spots, when you get, it's not just you know, it's, I mean, it could be ethnic or cultural homogeneity, it could be um, cognitive homogeneity, but when you get an extraordinary group of people who all share very similar backgrounds, massive gaps. You get enormous gaps. Yeah. I, I, I have had one of the needles I try to move is on diversity. And realizing that people are interested in their shareholder, shareholder value and shareholder benefits, the one I've had the most success with is talking about risk. I said, do you have a chief risk officer on your board of directors? Do you have a risk and committee? And I said, absolutely. Ever since the GFC, everybody's had that kind of thing. I said, so uh, I, I guarantee you, you are not paying sufficient attention to the greatest risk in your company. And they look at numerically measurable risks. And I go, it's the group think. Yeah. So the single biggest benefit to your company of ensuring a widely diverse um, group of people at all levels in your company is risk reduction. And it really gets them thinking. It really gets them thinking at board level. So HR people are frustrated that they can't get needles moved and budgets done on this. Because real, you know, we all know that the, the, the needle really hasn't moved much on things like gender and other diversity in, in, in major companies. But this has really got a number of people I've spoken to thinking about that. So... What's, what's one thing, just we, we should finish because we've run way over and I appreciate your time, but I know you've got one more thing to do tonight. Um, what's what's one, one idea that pops into your head that can get people thinking about, you know, a reframe that can get people moving the needle on stuff? Um, 
the two ways I know to practice, and it will vary, a lot of people say going for walks. Mm -hmm. um, the two things I know to practice, this are cryptic crosswords and detective fictional, or even detective true, true life crime. Because what you're trying to do is, with a cryptic crossword, is there's the surface reading of a clue, and, and your job is to actually disentangle the clue so it delivers its real, mm. which mm. helps you solve it. And you almost have to disconnect that rational, logical brain in order to reach the well, cryptic solution. Well, what's really fascinating to me, and this, this has a bearing on how we practice work, by the way, mm. is one thing every cryptic crossword person will say is... Um, that if you're stuck, you go away, you make a cup of tea, you do something else. Totally. And you come back and three of the clues, which were completely impenetrable to you before, yeah. become self-evident. Yeah. And it's very interesting that, you know, the um, I don't know if you watched the series. It was written by my brother-in-law, so, but I'm recommending it because it's brilliant, not because it's written by my brother-in-law. <laughs> Manhunt, which is about Colin Sutton, who is the detective on both the uh, Levi Belfield case um, ultimately, of course, the um, uh, working out that it, it was uh, Belfield who'd um, uh, killed Millie Dowler, as well as the, um, uh, uh, the, the other two or three victims. Uh, possibly more, actually, when I think about it. Mm. Uh, and, and also on the case of the Night Stalker, who was a serial rapist and housebreaker in South London. who'd been. And um, what was so interesting is he came along with a completely fresh pair of eyes. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, uh, very interesting, actually, this is absolutely true. With the Night Stalker, what they basically did is they invested huge amounts of resources whenever a more serious crime was committed, but they ignored, because it was beneath their dignity, burglary crimes which were likely committed by the same offender. Hmm. And his argument was, you're treating this guy as a, you know, effectively a rapist and murderer, but to be honest, you've got to be looking for a burglar. Hmm. And they were kind of like, well, we're the major crime squad. You know, we don't fart around with domestic, you know, someone's garage has been broken into. But it was the same guy. And you were much more likely to catch him if you were started in putting a bit more investigation into the appropriate burglary cases. Right. And it's, a, it's just a very interesting, it's a very interesting case, which is that everybody, essentially everything acquires its own logic, doesn't it? And Roger L. Martin, who's a very good business writer, makes this fantastic point where he says that, you know, the status quo is always innocent until proved guilty. Hmm. And the new idea is always guilty until proved innocent. That hmm. there's an asymmetry there in terms of how we consider alternative approaches. And as you said at the very beginning of the talk, OK, if you were designing a business from the ground up, would you really necessarily have all this real estate? Mm -hmm. Would all the real estate be right in the middle of London? Yeah. Exactly. And your second thought was around taking a walk. And um, I'm give my quick thought on that. I did many of them during lockdown, especially the area I live in now. And one of them was particularly memorable. I went there with a client. We had a couple of hours and they said, oh, it's really great walking with somebody who walks at a fast pace because we're both tall blokes. And we walked at a really fast pace and they operate at a fast pace. And what they wanted the talk to be about was their vision and strategy for the future. And about an hour and a quarter in, we'd stop for a cup to pick up a coffee to take out. We're standing at the top of a hill looking at the view. And I realized that we'd walked incredibly slowly the previous quarter of a mile. And it got into that space of really thinking slowly, really cogitating. And it was something really quite somatic about the fact. And I just I laughed out loud, really loud. And I went, have you noticed how slowly we're walking now? 
And then what are we talking about? And he laughed out loud too, because he kind of got it, you know. And what's your thought on walking? Yeah, no, I'm I'm a fan. I'm I'm also I also believe in you know exposure to nature is probably good as well. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, exposure just to uneven surfaces and to a variety of distances, I think is a healthy thing to do as well. Cool. Well, we could talk for hours, and it's been wonderful having uh, having. Well, let's do it again. Very very happy to. <laughs> Certainly, and uh, a plug for David McWilliams' wonderful conference is the second weekend in November. Uh, um, both of us and many others will be found in Kilkenny, Ireland, for Kilkenomics. I'm, I'm fairly sure, and it That's will. The be... first one since 2019. So it, it is. It's going it to be particularly yeah. exciting. And so, and as well, the the cost of coming is also going to be looked at as the investment of coming. Last time, I, I brought a bunch of people across from the Cayman Islands, and they literally flew across for the weekend. Right. Um, and so they, they, there's a lot of people invested in it. And I am super looking forward to that. And I will, as uh, they would say over there, the crack shall be deadly. And, uh, and it is. It is buy your man a pint of Guinness. Yeah. So, pleasure. Thank you, Rory. Always a joy. Speak soon as well, too. Yes. See you there.